0: And we're finished with the fall semester. You are important to this Bible study, each one of you. So I'm so glad that you're here. And I want you to know that if you wake up some morning and think, I don't think I'm going to go to Bible study today, uh, no one will miss me. That is not true. You will be missed. You are important to your group. And great things happen in your small group. The most important thing you hear today will probably be something that was said in your small group. And you may have been the one to say it. So don't sell yourself short. The Holy Spirit working through you is mighty. Whether you're a new believer, a young believer, an older believer, the Holy Spirit can prompt you to say that very insight that you got from God's words that might touch the heart of someone in your group. You are important. Thank you for being here. I'm Deb Haygood. I'm part of the teaching team for this fall. We have been walking with Jesus and learning from him. And I hope that you uh, know him more now than you did in the beginning. And I hope that you know more um, about what he cares about. Today we have been talking about lessons on self-sacrifice. Now, this has been a very hard lesson for me to put together and prepare. And I think part of that is because self-sacrifice is a paradox. When you hear self-sacrifice, self-denial, dying to self, take up your cross, it sounds hard. It sounds unpleasant. It makes us feel uncomfortable or worse. It makes us feel guilty or stressed out or fearful. But the truth is, from self-sacrifice comes joy and purpose and fulfillment and freedom. Self-sacrifice brings blessing. There's the paradox. And I bet every one of you in this room can think of a time that you did a, what we might call a self-sacrificial act for Jesus, and you... Felt blessed by it. You received blessing. Because we are created for a purpose, and when we're involved in that, we experience joy. But it's often hard to see that, and it's hard to remember it. So that's my goal for this lesson today, that we would truly understand what self-sacrifice means, and we would embrace it rather than fear it. We're going to look at Jesus' example of self-sacrifice, and then we're going to look at some of his teachings on self-sacrifice, and then we're going to end with the secret of self-sacrifice. So let's look first at um, two examples of Jesus and self-sacrifice. First, we're going to look at Philippians Chapter two. So get out your Bible. We're going to be uh, looking at several passages in the Bible today, so you will need your Bible. <clears throat> I will say that all the rest of them are in Matthew, but Philippians is for those of you um, that may be new to the Bible. Philippians is in the little group of small books. We've got the Gospels, and then we have Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians, and then there's are small books: Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And somebody in a Bible study a long time ago told me you can remember it by remembering the GE Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So that might help you. It helps me. And while you're turning to Philippians 2, let me just give you the definition. I wrote it on your outline. Um, I got it out of the collegiate dictionary. And it says self-sacrifice is sacrifice for one's personal interests or well-being for the sake of others or for a cause. And I thought that was a great definition of self-sacrifice, because I think Jesus would say that we set aside our personal interests for the sake of another and for the cause of Christ. So it's a good definition. Let's begin looking at Jesus' example here in Philippians 2, and we're going to start with verse 3. And Paul is uh, telling us something to begin with. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I like that vain conceit. When I look that up, it means an empty opinion motivated by pride. And I thought that was interesting because I kind of like my opinions and I like to hold on to them. And I thought, that's what it, when it's motivated by pride, it's just an empty opinion. And what we should be looking at is um, Humility. We should be thinking about humility. So what is humility? That's the opposite of pride. Well, it's knowing that who I am in light of who God is. Who I am in light of who God is. One quote said that it's not a groveling, self-despising spirit. It is a right estimate of ourselves as God sees us. Who I am in light of who God is. I am the one created by the creator God. I'm not the creator, I am the creature. But I am loved by God. And in the scriptures that tells us I am a co-heir with Christ. So I am a daughter of the Most High King. I am not a king, I am not God, but I am in the family of God. And the family of God is known for love, loving others. Not only my brothers and sisters in Christ, but those that are opposed to Christ and those who are indifferent to him. So humility is considering others rather than myself. Now, I also like it that in verse 4, Paul says, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, not only to our own interests. Of course, there are times that we are going to have to take care of our own interests. We have to eat, and we have to sleep, and we have to exercise, and we have to spend time alone with our Savior. Those things are necessary for life, for physical life and spiritual life. But we are not to be preoccupied with ourselves. We're not concentrating on on ourselves, but rather on others. We're not self-centered, we're Christ-centered, or other-centered. We're not selfish, we're unselfish. In humility, I consider others better than myself. And then in verse 5 and seven, five through 7, we're going to read that next, we see what uh, Paul tells us should be our attitude. It should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is God, God the Son, and yet for our sake, yours and mine, he sets that aside and he takes on the nature of man. Still fully God, somehow, we don't understand it, he becomes fully man. What that must have been like for Jesus to leave heaven ...and to walk on earth. Have you thought about that? To leave heaven and walk on earth. Surrendering his right to manifest his glory... ...and his splendor visibly to all. It says he didn't hold on tight to that right. He didn't grasp it. He let it go. He willingly set it aside. And he did that for you and me. Willingly giving it up. He did that for you and me... um, did it on the cross, Lynn talked about that two weeks ago, so we know what that cost him to sacrifice himself for us on the cross, to die so that we may live. A couple weeks ago, my husband and I went down to the Woodlands to see our little son, uh, grandson Dylan, play soccer. Now Dylan's only four years old, Uh, this is his first soccer team, I'm sure there's going to be many more games. We left early Saturday morning and came back Saturday night, it was not a sacrifice, To see that little guy. And afterwards we went to lunch and we were sitting around the table, the other grandparents and his parents and Dylan, and I saw my daughter Rachel talking to Dylan at the end of the table and I saw him looking um, and kind of contemplating. And um, Later I said, what are you guys talking about? And she said, well, Dylan wants to know why Jesus had to die on the cross. And Rachel said, well, because he loved us. And Dylan said, dying isn't loving us. And the reason Dylan thinks this is because his only real experience with death is that about a year ago, his dog Molly died. Now, he loved Molly, and um, he's still sad and still remembers Molly. And so to him, he's thinking to die isn't loving. So Rachel said, well, we were all in trouble. We didn't do what God wanted us to do, so we were in trouble with God. So Jesus got in trouble for us. That's why he died on the cross. He took time out for us. Now that sounds like a little silly explanation maybe or very overly simplistic, but for Dylan sitting there looking, I could see him thinking, he's four, he knows about getting in trouble, and he knows about time out. And so I think he was sitting there picturing Jesus on the little stool in the hallway sitting in time out. And I thought, what a humiliating picture. But that is really the story. He willingly took the humiliation of the cross for us. So, our first point here is self sacrifice begins with humility. So, let's turn over now to Matthew 26. We're going to look at one more example. There were many. You looked at them in your homework. But we're going to look at this one in Matthew 26, um, starting in verse 36. Now, this story is taking place, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've just finished <clears throat> the Lord's Supper in that upper room. Uh, Jesus has broken the bread and said, this is my body. He's passed out the wine, and he says, this represents my blood. That will be poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. And it tells us that they still didn't really understand that his death was imminent. So they go to this garden, and he's going to pray, and he tells the disciples to wait. But he takes Peter, James, and John a little farther on, and he tells them, and I'm going to start reading here in verse 38. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he comes back, he finds them and they're sleeping again, and he goes off a third time and prays this prayer again. Now there's many things we can talk about here, but for the point of this lesson on self-sacrifice, I want to talk about this prayer where Jesus says, Not my will, but thy will. Jesus asked the Father to take this cup from me. And this cup um, means the wrath of God. It probably is referring to his imminent death. It's referring to his suffering. Not just the physical suffering that we know was horrific, but that emotional suffering when he took on the sin of all mankind and he was separated from the Father for for a while. That suffering... Three times Jesus prays this prayer, and each time he ends it with, Yet not my will, but as you will. Jesus surrendered his will to the Father. He gave up his rights, and he gave up his life for us. Jesus is the perfect picture of self-sacrifice. He's the perfect example for us of self-sacrifice. And Jesus' life was not taken from him. He willingly gave it up. And I think that is an important thing for us to remember. He laid it down for us. And it says that in a couple of scriptures. On your verse sheet, I have John 10. It says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. In Luke 23:46, we know these are the very last words of Jesus on the cross. It says he called out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He willingly laid it down for us. On the cross, Jesus' last words tell us this. Jesus surrendered his life. And it's not the kind of surrender when the enemy defeats you and you're waving the white flag. It's a voluntary, willing surrender. It's really yielding or submitting. Yielding what is yours to another. Yielding your rights. It's to give up in favor of another. When we're driving our car and we come to a yield sign, we give up our right to advance so that the other car might advance. We yield to the other car. And I have another picture that's really um, precious to me. When Ben was a little guy, it's many years ago, he would hang on the monkey bars, and he'd just hang there and hang there, and then his dad would come up and put his arms around them, and then would let go and fall back into Scott's arms. He surrendered his grip. He let go, and he fell back into his dad's arms. Jesus surrendered his life. He let go. He yielded so that we may live. The second point is self-sacrifice involves yielding. Now let's look at um, some of the lessons that Jesus taught his disciples. And we're going to turn back to the first one, Matthew 16. So just turn to the left. Back to Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. Here's some lessons that we're going to look at about self-sacrifice. Let me read, starting with 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So once again, we see that they don't get it. Peter doesn't grasp what's going to happen. This sounds horrible. And in Peter's favor, I will say back in verse 16 of this chapter, he did answer very well. Jesus had asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, John the Baptist, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he looks at him and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Excellent answer, Peter. He is saying, you're the Messiah. You are God. Peter recognized the deity of Jesus but he couldn't see how the Messiah would suffer and be killed. And I can understand that. It didn't make sense to him, so he says, never, Lord. And it says he rebuked Jesus. How bold and how unwise. And I thought to myself, we must be very careful not to rebuke Jesus when we talk to him. Because how often do I not understand what Jesus is calling me to do? It doesn't make sense to me. And so I either argue with him or I hesitate, or sometimes I just ignore him. For example, I have a great plan, but my husband sees it differently. And I know that God wants me to yield to my husband, but it doesn't make sense to me. Or how about somebody has falsely accused me, and I want to set the record straight maybe even at the expense of that person. And God says, just let it go. And that doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand. And then I'm reminded of that verse in Isaiah 55 that says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways are higher. Sometimes, even when we don't understand, we need to just be obedient and follow Jesus. And then in verse 24, Jesus says to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus says, Take up your cross and follow me. This, ladies, is discipleship. Discipleship is following Jesus after salvation. Salvation is putting our faith, our trust in Jesus. Believing Jesus is who he says he is. We trust him and believe in him as our savior. Now we know, we've talked about this before, that salvation is a gift. It's a free gift. Um, God gives us this gift. And I have a verse that says that it's very familiar Romans 6:23 for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We cannot do anything to earn it. It's offered to us by grace through faith in Jesus. Discipleship on the other hand is costly. Jesus says discipleship means taking up your cross and following me. To take up your cross means to identify with Jesus. Now, we talked a couple weeks ago about the cross. It was a cruel and horrible means of capital punishment used by the Romans. It was, um, in fact, shameful and it was terrible, so much so that Roman citizens could not be crucified. It was reserved only for their enemies. Now, at this point, Jesus had not even told the disciples that he would be crucified, only that he would be killed. It's not until Matthew 20 that he talks about being crucified. And so later, the disciples would remember these words, Deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Those were the words of Jesus. Deny oneself, Warren Wiersbe says, does not mean to deny things. We sometimes get tripped up on those things. But it means to give yourself wholly to Christ and share in his shame and death. To identify with Christ might mean that we will be rejected by some. Maybe we will be ridiculed or laughed at or humiliated. Most of us in this place and time do not suffer um, and die for our identification with Jesus. But that could change. There may come a time that we might be called to suffer and die. There are many places in this world where Christians today are persecuted, they're jailed, and they're even killed for their faith in Christ. One day, we might be called to do that. So Jesus goes on and says, If we hold on to our life, meaning we live it like we want, regardless of what we feel Jesus is calling us to do, then we miss the blessing, we miss that joy of doing what we have been created to do. And so what if we store up treasures on earth? You know we all know that they can be here today and gone tomorrow, and yet we just like to have our things. We like to hold on to those things. I won one quote. One quote this really wealthy man um, said, when asked about it, said, "I guess um, I'm going to just be the richest man in the cemetery." Now, what a waste. We all laugh at that, and yet sometimes we act like that. But Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven where they will never be lost. They are eternal treasures. Loving your children, thinking of ways to give or help the poor or the needy or the sick, encouraging your friends, blessing your husband, honoring your parents. These are eternal treasures. This is storing up eternal treasures. So here is that paradox. Whoever loses his life for me will find it, but whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Now, you all probably know that story. It's kind of a sad story. The little boy gets a chick for Easter, and he's holding on to that little chick. It's wiggling, and he's holding on to it so tight, and his mom says, don't hold on so tight, and he goes, well, I don't want to lose it, and he holds on so tight that he just squeezes the life out of that little chick. He's held on so tight that he's lost it. When we give up our hold on our way, on our rights, on the whatever might seem beneficial, then God can use us in a way that brings life. That brings life. Death is the way to life. That paradox. Now, I wanted an example of that. Um, I was thinking of an Aesop fable, but I couldn't find it. If you all are reading my mind and know what it is, come up afterwards and tell me. But I did find a great word picture in the scripture, so I'm going to use that. It's on your verse sheet. It's John 12, 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. Now, um, I don't know how many of us are farmers. I'm certainly not, but I have planted some. And I kind of think, how many of you have planted a seed, either flower seeds or vegetable seeds, and, and you've grown a plant? How many of you? Every one of you? Just about, probably. Okay, so you know what that means. Um, I used to plant, years ago, uh, some vegetables. And my grandfather would give me okra seeds. I like okra. And you know those little gray round okra seeds. If I took one and put it on my windowsill and looked at it all summer, at the end of summer, all I would have is one single okra seed on my windowsill. But if I take that seed and I put it down in the ground and I bury it and cover it up and water it, In a very short time, up comes a plant, and then all summer long, I have okra from that single seed. From death comes life. Jesus' death led to glory and life, not just for himself, but for others. I read a quote that said, To live for oneself is to fail to recognize the purpose of our creation. If we die to self and live for his interests, Then we become winners. To take up my cross means to identify with Christ, to be committed to the things of Christ, which sounds a lot to me like loyalty. So your third point on your outline, self-sacrifice takes loyalty. Let's turn now to Matthew 19, and we're going to look at another lesson on self-sacrifice. We're going to start with verse uh, 16, but really, um, Dr. A.B. Bruce, the author of Training the Twelve, tells us that this whole chapter is really about self-sacrifice. Now, this is taking place towards the end of Jesus' ministry, and he's left Galilee, it tells us. He's gone back down south towards Jerusalem, but he's on the other side of the Jordan River in an area called Perea, and you might remember when we started back in um, September, we said that this is where Jesus started his ministry, in Perea. This is where John the Baptist baptized Jesus. This is where he heard the voice of God say, This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. So he's back there, and verse 2 tells us that there are still large crowds following him. He's still teaching. He's still healing them. And there are still Pharisees coming and asking him questions, trying to trip him up. And the first one we see here is he asks him Jesus about divorce. Now, the essence of what he's saying here is that relationships take self-sacrifice. And marriage, in particular, calls for us to be unselfish. And then he gives the little story here. We read about the little children being brought to him. And he says, let them come to me. And he blesses them. And this example reminds the disciples that we are to consider others better than ourselves. We are to respect even little children. And then we come to verse 16. And I must say that it was a little scary when I walked in here Sunday, and there was Dr. Mark Bailey, president of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he's going to preach on the story of the rich young ruler. But I um, thought he did an excellent job, and so we don't really have to spend much time on it. And uh, that will be a good thing. This passage is about salvation. The young man is trying to obtain eternal life through works, and Jesus, through a series of questions and statements, tries to get him to see that that is impossible. Only God is perfect. Salvation comes from God. But the passage is also about discipleship and about priorities, and Jesus needs to be our number one priority. You know, Jesus isn't saying that wealth is bad. We just can't let it be our security. We can't be dependent on it. There's other things, um, any other thing. We cannot let that be our security or depend on it. Only Jesus can be what we depend on. He is our number one priority. We know that Abraham was very wealthy. God had blessed Abraham with much land, with livestock, with um, possessions, and with children. He had Ishmael, and he had Isaac. And yet, Abraham's first priority was God, always God. And in obedience, he was willing to give up everything, even his son, if God asked him. Sadly, the rich young ruler... Um, was not willing, or so it would seem to me in the scripture. He loved his wealth. He was dependent on his wealth. And so he did left. It seems like he didn't put his faith in Jesus. And then we see Peter in verse 27. And I love this because the other disciples, they're all sitting around thinking, wow, a camel through the eye of the needle. But Peter, sharper than the others, he speaks out and says, hey, well, what about us? We have left everything. What are we going to get out of this? And then Jesus tells them these amazing things in verse 28. I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much. And will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So here's that paradox of self sacrifice again. You give up everything and you receive a hundred times back. First will be last, last will be first. Eugene Peterson calls it the great reversal. And Jesus goes on and gives us that parable in chapter 20 to explain it a little better. And I think two main points came out of it for me. One is that Jesus is the one who will decide the rewards that we each get. Because Jesus knows our hearts and he knows what motivates us. In the final accounting, it will be Jesus who gives us our rewards. And I also think we see in there that God is generous. God is generous. I mean, he's just told the disciples, they're sitting around with stars in their eyes thinking, I'm going to sit on a throne ruling Israel. And then he tells everyone else, you're getting a hundred times as much and eternal life. God is generous. You may have already experienced God's generosity. You may have experienced you step out a little bit in faith. You give up a small thing. And back to you comes great things. God is generous. He blesses you in great ways. My grandfather used to love to say, Debbie, you cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive God. So, our service, our self sacrifice re- results in rewards. And what are these rewards? We just saw Jesus say that we will inherit eternal life. In your homework, you looked at a lot of verses. We're not going to look at them again, but a lot of verses that talked about crowns everlasting, never-fading crowns of glory. And we even read that chapter in Revelation that talked about laying them at Jesus' feet with the thought, maybe, I don't know, but maybe we're going to lay this crown at the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine what it would be like in heaven to lay down your crown? My son was privileged to go to the Ranger game, and on his iPhone, the one where they beat the Giants in the World Series, and on his iPhone, he filmed all the confetti after the game and everybody cheering and all the excitement. And when I looked on it, I'd seen it on the news, but there was something about looking from his, cam- from his little phone that's a camera now. You're right, Vicki. And, I mean, the excitement of it, I just thought, oh, my goodness. And I thought, will heaven be like that at all? I mean, the excitement and the joy and the love in that room and the cheers as, as everyone praises Jesus. And then we walk up. And can you imagine, what will I say? It could be that I will be speechless for the first time in my, my life. Or maybe I had this thought this week, I hope it's true, that God will give me words that I don't even know of now that somehow really express The love and the praise that I have for Jesus. What an excitement. And if that's not enough, eternal life, if that's not enough, I also think we experience the rewards of self-sacrifice right now. I think that because in John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Abundant life. And John fifteen eleven says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. I think that we experience the rewards of self-sacrifice right now. Those rewards of freedom and blessing and fulfillment and purpose and joy. Joy. My topical Bible says joy is one of the most delightful of human emotions. Joy from the Lord is a joy that lodges deep within the human heart. And it is not necessarily related to our circumstances. We can experience joy in the midst of suffering and hardship. We experience joy in the midst of self-sacrifice. Mother Teresa said that joy is sometimes a mantle that clothes a life of self-sacrifice and self-giving. It's a cloak around us in a life of self-giving. Self-sacrifice results in rewards in eternity and right now. Let's go on. And we're going to look at um, the last Thing on your outline, and that is the secret of self-sacrifice. And we're going to look at that in Matthew 26, we're going to go back where we started here, verse 6. We're going to look at this story quickly, and let me read starting in verse 6 of chapter 26 of Matthew. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor... You will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This story is told in um, two other Gospels, in Mark and in John, and when we read the stories there, we get a few more details. So in the account of John, we know that this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And we have seen her twice before. We saw her sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from him while Martha, bless her heart, was in the kitchen preparing. We all know that. She has a little meltdown. And Jesus uh, commends Mary and says she has um, chosen the better part. And then we see Mary again. And once again, she's at the feet of Jesus. Her brother Lazarus has died, and she goes out to meet Jesus. And she falls at his feet and weeps. She takes her burdens To the feet of Jesus. And now in this story, we see that she's going to worship at the feet of Jesus. We see here that Mary comes with her most precious possession, freely giving it out of love for Jesus. She brings a very expensive stone jar filled with an ointment called nard. And she pours it on his head. And in, God, in the Gospel of John, it also tells us she poured it on his feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. Now, this is not an everyday event. Um, for one thing, women didn't let their hair down in public, so to speak. Um, but she didn't care. She was doing this humbling act out of love and devotion. Mary had listened to Jesus. And when the others did not understand, they couldn't comprehend that Jesus was going to suffer and die on the cross, it seems to us that Mary gets it. She gets it, and she understands And how her love for Jesus overwhelms her. And she knows that the time is short, and she must act now. She must honor him and worship him, and she needs to do it now out of her deep love for Christ so she takes this bottle of ointment and it was expensive because nard came from a plant in the Himalayas in India and it says it was expensive, it was worth a whole year's wage, we don't know how she got it but she has it think to yourself what it would be like what a year's wage is to you and think of what you could buy with that and then just give it away that's what Mary did She poured it out on Jesus. She didn't save it. We don't know if she had it for her dowry when she got married or maybe it was for her own burial. We don't know why she had it, but we know that she didn't save it. She poured it out, and not just half the bottle, which I might be tempted to do. She poured out the whole bottle on Jesus, all of the ointment, and the perfume filled the room. And she was oblivious to what others might think. And to what others might say, she was only aware of Jesus. John MacArthur says, being absolutely controlled by adoration for her Lord, she lost all sense of restraint and economy. What a great act of devotion. She lost all sense of restraint and economy. It was an act of unmeasured love. Think of that sweet smell of the perfume filling the room. And I thought it would be so neat if somehow I had something that would, you know, kind of wish out some perfume and we could all smell that, that sense, uh, smell. But I think that the disciples, every time they got a whiff of that perfume from then on out, they would remember Jesus' words of blessing to Mary. She has done a beautiful thing to me. This act of self-sacrifice, moted by love, was a beautiful thing to Jesus. Do you think that Mary thought, I'm going to do something sacrificial today. I've got to be self-sacrificing. And it will be hard. Woe is me. You know, I don't think she thought that. And do you think that she ever regretted that she poured that ointment out on Jesus. Do you think she ever sat back and thought, if I just didn't pour the oil out on Jesus, if I just had that today, you know, no. She didn't think that. Because when we do something self-sacrificing out of love, we don't even think about it. She was motivated by love, and so she didn't even realize what she was doing was self-sacrificing. So that is the secret to self sacrifice It is motivated by love for Jesus. Mother Teresa um, took care of the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India for many years. She uh, ministered to them and took care of their medical needs... They were um, dying and poor. some had leprosy, some had AIDS, they had all kinds of illnesses and diseases, and she did it for years. And one time, a um, reporter asked her, um, how could she take care of the broken, dying poor of Calcutta?" And she said, "When I look into their face, I see the face of Jesus. When I look into their face, I see the face of Jesus." So please don't leave here today and think that you have to run out and start doing self-sacrificial things. Instead, leave here today praying, I love you, Jesus, and I want to love you more and more. And as you do that, I think you'll go out and in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be sacrificing as you pray for others. And you will... Be more unselfish in your relationships. You'll be denying yourself when you give up that anger instead of giving into it. You'll forgive someone and realize that it was motivated by um, self-sacrifice for your love for Jesus. You'll tell the good news of Jesus and you'll serve with humility. And then one day you'll be taken aback when someone says, what a self-sacrificing life you lead. Jesus calls us to um, deny ourselves, to identify with him, to take up our cross and follow him. And when we do that, because we love Jesus, it may not even seem so difficult. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are a generous and good God. You're a loving God, and you are a just God. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us. Father, I pray that each one of us in this room would think about your love for us and that we would go out and be motivated by that love to love others. Father, I pray that we wouldn't run out feeling stressed or guilty thinking about self-sacrifice as a duty, but rather, Father, we would be motivated by our love for Jesus to act in that way. Thank you, Father. Bless these women. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Deb. Christmas brunch is just around the corner on December 4th, and tickets are on sale today. You can get them at the welcome desk um, as soon as we dismiss. They cost $18, and please consider bringing...